Hey there, thank you so much for joining us. It's the Big Time Talker Podcast. We're everywhere now, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday are right there for you to subscribe to. And the show is brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. SpeakerMatch is the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. So if you're a meeting planner or maybe you're a platform speaker, you can find one another at the online virtual marketplace at SpeakerMatch.com. Check them out. You know, I love to talk music. An old radio guy can't get away from it. And uh, today we've got a guy whose voice you have undoubtedly heard on classic rock radio. If you're old like me, top 40 radio back in the day. And now he's back all over something called Yacht Rock, which is available uh, everywhere for his classic song, Smoke from a Distant Fire. He was uh, the singing half of the Sanford Townsend Band in the 1970s. That song was a huge top 10 hit. Johnny Townsend is on the show. Nice to talk to you, sir. Well, nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You are, um, you're an Alabama boy originally. Absolutely, yes. From the town of Tuscaloosa. And and a lot of, as I look back on on your career, a lot of Southern music influences before you decamped to Los Angeles. And you wound up going back to work with a bunch of big Southern rock acts. How much did your childhood, you think, growing up in in Alabama influence your music? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, there were... uh... The musicians that I grew up, like when I was at like junior high age and high school age, my friends would drive around. And sometimes we'd crash these little events at the University of because the University of Alabama was right there. Sure. And they were always having parties with bands and stuff, you know, not necessarily the fraternity parties, but like welcoming day for the freshmen would always have a band in the old Foster Auditorium, you know? Yep, yep. And uh, I used to, uh, we'd go in and there and plug in and say, wow, that looks like really fun, you know? And I'd been taking piano lessons like in the fifth and the sixth grade and stuff. And and it just piqued my musical interest. There was a, there was a band on stage one night called Hollis Dixon and the Keynotes. And they played all this great old R&B and blues stuff. And uh, I was, I just got hooked on it. It's, uh, you know, people like Dinah Washington grew up in my town, my hometown, and, uh, you know, great vocal influences like that. Uh, you know, a bunch of my friends, you know, we knew guys like, uh, the, as, as I got into later in high school and into college, our friends were people like Johnny Sandlin. Johnny, Johnny was a drummer for uh, the Hourglass, which was one of the versions of the Allman Brothers band. Right, right. And Paul Hornsby, who also produced Marshall Tucker Band and stuff later on in later years. These were all really close friends of ours, as well as the Swampers, all the guys in Muscle Shoals. Barry Beckett was a, you know, I met Barry Beckett in, in, a, in a bar in, in Pensacola one summer when we were playing down the street, you know, and and the guy just blew me away. And then later on, a few years later, he was playing with the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. That's where we got to meet Roger Hawkins and David Hood and all those wonderful Jimmy guys. Johnson, those all those guys. Cats. Our, those guys were our heroes, you know. And we uh, pretty much everything we did, we emulated those guys. Were you able to record anything uh, at, at Fame and Muscle Shoals or at the Muscle Shoals Yeah, studio? actually, uh, the first recordings that, that my band, we had a band called the Rubber Band when I was in college. Uh, the rubber band. And, uh, the rubber band. And we had Fantastic. a hit called uh, Let Love Come Between Us. 
that was later, uh, it was actually a turntable hit. It was went to number one in 20 major cities and we were on Columbia Records, but Columbia at the time didn't even know that it was their record. So it got no promotion and it just kind of died on the radio. But later on, it was picked up by Mavis Staples, the Pointer Sisters, uh, James and Bobby Purify had a hit with it and called Let Love Come Between Us. And uh, so anyway, all those things just snowballed and it's like, wow, we can make money at this, you know? And uh, it, it's, uh, plus it's fun. So uh, yeah, you know, the, but anyway, those guys were all our heroes. You know, we, 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 we kind of much, pretty much followed in their, in their footsteps in a lot of ways. And then uh, Sanford and I went back to Muscle Shows with Jerry Wexler and Barry Beckett to record the Smokes Medicine Fire album, which was like full circle. It was just beautiful. That must have been uh, a real honor to, to work with Jerry Wexler. Did, did you know as a young guy what a big deal he was? Oh, absolutely. I, I knew for a fact before we were ever involved with him for years that he discovered Ray Charles. He did back, back at the backstage at the Apollo Theater one night. He took him to Atlanta and recorded him in a radio station there. That was the first recording that Ray Charles had done, and, and Jerry Wexler was responsible for all that. Plus, He's the one responsible for, for getting Aretha Franklin from Columbia Records onto Atlantic Records and, and then, you know, making this incredible career happen for her. So, you know, Jerry Wexler was iconic for us, you know. And we were actually the first band, the first uh, act that wasn't a solo act that he produced. We're the first band he ever worked with. And of course, after he worked with us, he did Dire Straits, and you know, was, you know, everything, every move he made was kind of historical in a lot of ways. You can see more about Jerry Wexler and uh, the Muscle Shoals guys, and uh, and Aretha Franklin in in the biopic about her came out a couple of years ago. He was a yes. an icon in the industry. Um, you know, you graduated from high school and college at a time in the South where things were still pretty segregated, and I wonder. What year, by the way, did you graduate from high school? Uh, 64. That was the same year that the Civil Rights Act was passed. And, and we're, we're right thinking, in the middle of it all then. Yeah, and, and we're all thinking, wow, yeah, well, this is great. It's going to be a new age, but, you know, it's kind of, here we it's are. Like it's kind of been kind of short-lived. You know? Here we are. What did, did you, because you talked about being influenced by those R&B acts from the day. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, there were amazing R&B acts in, in and around you everywhere, you know, not the least of which, you know, people like Otis Redding. And I wonder if you ever, did you ever sneak into those clubs? Did the, the black and white musicians mix at that time? Kind of paint a yes. picture for folks yes, who weren't around. My wife, my wife played in a band. Uh, she played piano in a band called Salt and Pepper that was uh, mixed racially. And But because of the segregation, they mostly played black Elks clubs and things like that, you know. And they went, she went to the Bahamas one year and with, with, with the band. And But it's, uh, it, you know, it, all of that wasn't happening with the musicians. The music musical community was very... Uh, you know, we, we were all into each other. You know, I mean, my, my friends and I got to go, my musician friends and I got to go into black clubs where white people didn't go, you know, and we got to hang out with people and, and see a culture and, uh, and hear all this great music 
for one right. thing, we wouldn't have otherwise gotten gotten here, you know, if we'd just been regular people off the street, you know, they might not have even let us in. And one of the things that we did is I had some friends who were pretty rough guys in high school, football players and stuff, but they're right. all pretty hip, you know, and loved the music. And, and uh, we used to, uh, after we graduated from high school, well, actually it was a senior year of our high school, we started having regular football games with a black high school, with some guys from a black high school across town, Druid City, Druid High School. And we'd go out and play on their lawn. There'd be about a dozen of us and about a dozen of them. And they had a couple of guys, one guy that was like on the taxi squad for the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> wow. Was no pads, tackle football. And, but boy, at the end of the day, you know, these guys, I mean, we would, we'd be hugging each other and it was like, you know, we, you knock the crap out of a guy and then you get up and you shake his hand and you hug him. And it was like, it was wonderful. It was a, that and the music were the two really great things that allowed us to blend into, you know, the black community at that time. And we loved it. We, you know, we, we had some great friends in those days in, in, the, in that community. Well, there's certainly, you know, more than just a hint of, of black music in the Sanford Townsend band stuff. You have a very soulful voice. And by the way, if, if you're a, if you're wondering who this guy is that we're talking to today, Johnny Townsend, uh, well-known singer-songwriter and the lead singer of the Sanford Townsend Band. Huge top 10 hit back in 1977, Smoke from a Distant Fire. We're going to play that along with some of his music from the Toller Townsend Band. Um, I, I have to tell you, coming up in, in radio, uh, I was a, a young boy in West Virginia back in the early 80s, and I have a very vivid memory of working at a station in Huntington, West Virginia, back when when all the music were on carts, which for people that are not in radio, look like eight track tapes, right? Which right. is another antiquated uh, thing. But but there was a Sanford Townsend band, Smoke from a Distant Fire, and the music director loved that song. The program director loved that song. And this was, you know, 10 years after the thing was a hit. Still, though, had uh, sort of a timeless quality, and it fit in with those songs from the mid-'80s. And, and I know that you were right in the middle of it with that song, but looking back on it, what is it you think that has made Smoke from a Distant Fire so timeless? Why does it hold up so well when so many songs from that that era feel very dated and this one doesn't? I'm not really sure. You know, I, I, I think it's because it's, it was, it's really uh, well-ranged, well-written, and well-played. Uh, right. And good, good music seems to stand up for long periods of time, you know, and, and I think the lyrics... Lyrics had something to do with it. Well, when 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 Sanford and I were signed our first publishing deal with uh, with Chapel Music here in, in L.A., uh, we they uh, our our publisher pitched that song to Three Dog Night, to Elton John, to like twenty other acts. That, and the word the the feedback that we always got was, well, "We can't hear the hook." You know? Are you kidding me? Hook? No, no, but it only says "Spoke from a Distant Fire" three times in the whole song. But the the song to me is full of hooks. The da 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 da, da is a hook, and can't it, get that out of your head. It interferes half a dozen times throughout the song or more, and it's it just flows nicely. There's a there's a great uh, musical and lyrical quality to it that I you know uh, it's. I don't know. Sometimes it's a matter of personal taste, but a lot of people still like it. I mean, I still get letters and 
uh, emails and, and texts from people all over the world, from Macedonia to Australia to South Africa, you know, to it's uh, how much our music has affected them. And thank you very much for making it, you know. And, but uh, we're just, you know, we're thrilled that, that because, again, back to the music, we pretty much we recorded that album in Muscle Shoals. And our players were kind of emulating those Muscle Shoals guys that we that we loved so much, you know. And I guess I, I don't know, but as far as why it's lasted so long, who knows? It's just really up in the air. I've asked a lot of other songwriters that I, I work with if they knew a particular song was going to do well, if there was any any way to look into that crystal ball and go, okay, this one's okay, this one's okay, this one, though, this one is special. And clearly that song was very special for you in your career. And I mean, here we are talking about it 50 years later, but, but did you and Ed Sanford, did you guys have any clue that this was going to be a really big song when you wrote it? Well, you know what, uh, during the recording process, uh, we were, the band was all down in Muscle Shoals and Barry and, and Jerry, Barry Beck, Beckett and Jerry Wex were in the control room with our engineer and uh, it's, uh, and, and it gets to a point in the day, it's like we were doing like long sessions. So it got to be like late afternoon and we're trying to get this track and we, you know, it was one time it'd be too fast so let's slow it down. And then the next time it was too slow. And then Barry says, okay, let's just stop it right here. And let's go to dinner. But so, so this was, Barry knew that we needed to slow down and step back from it. And so we went out and had dinner and, you know, we just took our time. Barry had that extra piece of apple pie with ice cream, you know, <laughs> but it was one of those great Southern soul food places we were eating dinner that night. So we all came back to the studio just full and we're kind of sitting around just like, you know, in slow motion at 33 and a third, you know, and it was, uh, uh, which shows my age, right? But uh, I was going to leave it alone, but you know, you brought so it up right after dinner. We said, okay, let's try this one more time. And the first take after dinner was the one, it was a jewel. I mean, it was just like, you know, it just like, it just sat there in the pocket, just real beautifully. And our drummer, drummer had a tendency, like when he got excited, he'd, he'd start to play things a little fast, you know? Right. I mean, wonderful drummer. I mean, excellent. But, it's it's a, it's a habit with musicians. Once you learn something, you start speeding it up. If you ever heard James Brown's version of Shotgun, yep. you know what I'm talking about. You know it flies through. Yes, uh, this this was like perfect. Barry had the perfect psychology. Put some food in them, slow them down, and we got the perfect take. I've been in that studio, and and when you walk in there now, you feel like you're you're walking on hallowed ground because so much incredible music came out of there. Oh, it's almost like a holy place for rock and rollers, you know. I agree. I, I thoroughly agree. Yeah. So when the song started to take off, you're still a pretty young cat. You talked about going home to Alabama to record this thing in Muscle Shoals. Do you remember um, your parents' reaction, your friends' reaction from high school? You know, did, did those people treat you differently when suddenly you're on national television, you're on these big tours with all these big acts? You know, take me back there in your mind of what you remember about that time when this song was everywhere. 
Well, there was a period I was in California. I had left home and uh, in California for several years. I came back a couple of times and then came, but it just, I knew what I had to do was out here. Right. Because this is where the, I was making connections. You know, uh, when I first came to California, you could go to, uh, you could drive down Sunset Boulevard and there were like 20 clubs that you could see. Sons of Champlin, Muddy Waters, Traffic, uh, Electric Flag, you know, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, all on the same street on the same night. Unbelievable. And, you know, there would be after hours gigs place where people would go some find some club that's going to be open all night and guys would just show up and plug in, you know. Uh, it, it was it was so exciting. There was nothing like that happening in Alabama. Granted, the the music that was coming out of Muscle Shoals was, uh, you know, certainly world renowned. But at the same time, what was happening out here was in the '60s, and in, and in San Francisco was what was happening. And right. Right. I knew that I had to be here. And but there were several years of lean stuff. But when I went back. You know, I remember going back uh, and playing the Birmingham Municipal Auditorium. My family came up from Tuscaloosa. Uh, Ed's family came up from Montgomery. And uh, we were in this old, you know, the old Birmingham. And we were opening for Hart. And when my, my parents got, you know, they saw the tour bus. We were, we were, we were, we were traveling in Jimmy Buffett's tour bus. Had four <laughs> windows. It was like, a sh- dry, like uh, driving down the highway in a ship. But it was beautiful. <laughs> and, uh, but um, I mean, Jimmy rented it out when he wasn't on tour, so that's and that's how we wound up with it. But yep, my parents would come, and my dad. I remember my dad looking at the bus and standing, seeing where we tra- how we traveled, you know, and and then they sat on the uh, uh, sat back in the, in the audience and, and then watched the crowd and stuff. And and after the show, I remember I remember. At, my mom and dad and Ed's mom and dad were kind of hand standing together in the, in the dressing room. And, and I asked Mrs. Mrs. Sanford, Ed's mother, I says, uh, uh, how did you, did you enjoy that? She says, Oh, well, CL, her husband, Ed's dad. He said, well, CL put some of these, uh, put some cotton in his ears, but I just had a sip of this Jack Daniels and I was fine, but I, I, thought <laughs> I, I, I really enjoy, I mean, it was a thoroughly, you know, they were so, you know, uh, they were taken, they were agog. I mean, uh, they, they were taken aback by what I had done because my dad for years, for the years that I was in California was not a little inkling of anything happening really. Uh, when it, was, it was always every phone conversation is, well, when you coming home for that place falls off in the ocean out there, you know? And right, sure. That's all I ever got. You know, And I'd go home and are you still playing in that band, you know? And it never made sense to him. My dad was in the insurance business and it's something in didn't relate to the fact that you could actually make a good living, you know, playing music and stuff. So uh, he couldn't even wrap his well, head around. It wasn't the culture I was raised in, kind of, but, it, 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 but it was fun. Yes. And the reactions were, were amazing. Uh, and people, people just responded wonderfully, you know, like it was very congratulatory, you know, for us. And we were of course thrilled because I think everyone really strives in their lives for acceptance of their peers, you know, and especially the people you grew up with. Sure. As, as your song is taking off, you're on the road opening for some of the biggest artists of the time you were out 
as the opening act for Foreigner, for Marshall Tucker Band, uh, Jimmy Buffett, who you mentioned earlier, that you guys bogarted his tour bus. Uh, your parents got to see open for Heart, Charlie Daniels. And at one time, I read that you were actually opening for the biggest band on the planet during their biggest era, and that's Fleetwood Mac during their Rumors tour. Yeah, that was that was huge. They were at their peak when we went out on the road with them, and it was uh, it was actually uh, our manager really uh, pulled a nice one on there to get us onto that tour because I mean they were very gracious. It was really it was really a fun tour to do. I mean, my gosh, we played nothing but football stadiums and, and huge arenas. I mean, we played race tracks in in Canada, and and I remember. Uh, being at JFK Stadium uh, where Philadelphia, you know, won their game the other day uh, is uh, with uh, uh, 90,000 people there. We were opening for uh, a Steve Miller band and Fleetwood. And I think of uh, Bob Welch was also on that show. So, uh, but and if people uh, are there to see Fleetwood Mac, how do you win over a crowd to the Sanford Townsend band? Well, we weren't that uh, incompatible with them. I mean, the music that we played was was close enough. You know, I mean, it wasn't anything like them but specifically, but it was close enough. It's not like, I mean, we did dates where we opened for Blue Oyster Cult, you know. And, oh, wow. And A whole like different world. Uh, yeah, a lot of <clears throat> some metal bands and what are you, whatever, you know, and it's a lot less, you know compatible but uh but you know we because of i don't know there was a niche that we had that we fit with charlie daniels and marshall tucker but we also fit with fleetwood and 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 some other people you know like a lot of other people but you know there were certain things the gigs that we did were like i don't know about this audience you know it's like I saw some video of you guys, uh, and you know, uh, Google is a wonderful thing. You can go back and find everything. And I saw this great clip of of you guys on the Midnight Special. And wow. for our listeners who were not around back, this is in the pre-MTV days, and this great TV show that was hosted by Wolfman Jack had the biggest artist in the planet on. The week that you guys were on, Helen Reddy was the guest host, and uh, really? she introduced you, and and there you are singing this incredibly big song. When you go back and look at video of that, it was a minute ago. Do you remember distinctly what was happening then? Or is it almost well, sure. like it's another guy? Certain events like that, you know, really stick out in your mind and very vividly because uh, for actually for number one, I we, we always believed that they had us on that show thinking that we were black. And I don't, I, we didn't take it as an insult or anything. I, I was actually flattered by that because uh, all my heroes were mostly, all my vocal heroes certainly were, were, were people of color. And the, um, I remember when we showed up to do that show, uh, we, we got our guys loaded the equipment in and we went and found a you know, dressing room with our name on it. We were kind of sitting there and then, a guy walks in there like well, the, our, all our band, we're sitting around in the dressing room and some guy walks in with a clipboard and says, has anybody seen Sanford and Townsend? <laughs> and we, go, we raise our hands, you know. Yes, like, oh, that's, that's me. You know? And, uh, and they seemed really surprised because uh, who, the show that we did that day, the acts were Thelma Houston, Marvin Gaye, and the uh, Commodores with Lionel Richie. 
get out of here. That so they definitely thought you were a black hat. We got to meet all of those people. Got a wonderful com- com- compliment from uh, Thelma Houston, who actually said, I love y'all's song. And he says, you just knocked me out tonight. You know, so it was great to be on the stage. Well, Marvin Gaye is one of my all-time heroes. You know, I mean, the guy was just a complete musician and complete songwriter and artist and everything. And, uh, I, I, you know, the early bands I did, we did a, almost everything that he ever had a hit with. You know, Hitchhike, you know, Stubborn Kind of Fella, you know. Ain't that peculiar? All those great songs, but and you get to yeah. meet your hero. How great yeah. is that? But yeah. So anyway, but I remember doing it. I think we did. We did a one. We did one warm up take so they could get the sound. We had a guy that was also helping them mix the sound, and uh, so we did one. Said, okay, you guys ready to do it? And then that was it. We did one take, and that one, you know, bang, it was, that was done. And it, I remember at the end of the video, I go like that because you know, <laughs> you know we nailed it. i just felt like we nailed it on that show you know and of course we'd been on the road for six months already doing it so we, we should have had it right you should google was, that i do remember that it was a very memorable experience certainly google it and check it out meeting all those wonderful artists I, you, know. you um you talked about moving to california before the hit several years before the hit and and you and, and Ed working as songwriters and studio musicians, you've got a great Kenny Loggins connection there. And you've done a lot of work with Kenny Loggins. I'm a huge fan. He's doing his farewell tour this summer. I hope to see him here in D.C. at Wolf Trap. Um, tell us about your connection to, to the great Kenny Loggins. Well, Kenny, we, we were very good friends for a long period of time. You know, uh, as people do, they just kind of go their separate ways because everyone gets busy. But uh Ed and I were really close friends with two guys, a bass player and drummer who were original members of a group called the Sunshine Company. It was Merle Briganti on drums and Larry Sims on bass. And they were also original members of the Lockheed Messina band because Jimmy had, was looking for around to put this band together. Uh, Jimmy had discovered Kenny uh, as a songwriter uh, at ABC, ABC Music. He heard some of the songs and and decided that he wanted to produce Kenny. And then once he got into producing Kenny, he decided I can make more money at this by being part of the band. So at that point, the, the bands, he, they, you know, conceived the band and then original and then, you know, collected members of which my friends, Larry, our friends, Larry and Merle were, uh, you know, became part of the band. So our close relationship with them, you know, We'd go to see their rehearsals. I mean, they rehearsed for a year before they ever played their first game. Because oh, wow. Jimmy had money and he could pay them out, pay the guys, you know, without, you know, so they'd have to go, wouldn't have to go out and look for other gigs. Right. But uh, anyway, uh, over the period of time, we, we became really close with Kenny and, and we, you know, we swapped songs a couple of times, like, you know, hey, I got one here. And, so Kenny would invite us up, uh, invited me several times up to uh, up to Carpinteria. He had a little house on the beach up there, and we would sit up all night and write songs. And one of them uh, wound up being uh, "Lady Luck," which was the, uh, the opening cut to his first solo album. And uh, we wrote uh, two songs for the Loggins Messina record, a song called "Peacemaker" and another one called "Wasting Our Time" that Ed and I wrote with Kenny. Oops. And uh, 
anyway, uh, the uh, but we just we just became close, and then you know we we the sun would come up in the morning, and uh, Kenny's uh, girlfriend or uh, I think they I don't think they were married at that time. She would make us breakfast, and we'd go sit out on the beach and eat breakfast on the beach, watching this you know, in the morning uh, morning. Can't fun. do that in Tuscaloosa. No, not not really, but it, it was really fun, and and but uh, you know as as things do, you know we people kind of drift apart. We go our own ways, and and they go off on tour, and I. I'm, and there was one tour that uh, uh, that Ed and I did. Uh, Kenny called me up one night and said, "Hey, listen, I, I got another album coming up, and I want you to come up and write." And I said, "Kenny, we're leaving at five o'clock tomorrow morning to go out on tour for you know for several months." Uh, I tell you what, why don't you give Michael McDonald a call? Wow, which was probably the worst mistake I ever made because he started writing hits with Michael. He wrote uh, yep. uh, "No Looking Back" and uh, "Gosh, uh, what was the other big song?" Uh, "For the Fool Believes." So that was a song that they wrote that I, you know, that I was out. You put them together. That I hooked together. Well, Michael and I had been I had been working in in town when I was off the road. I did a, I did a lot a lot of records with uh, with Michael as a background vocalist. It was a, actually as a trio. It was me and Michael and Rosemary Butler, who was the, the lovely girl, the blonde that, that sang behind Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt all those years. And uh, but uh, we had a great trio. We did dozens of records together. It was, it was really fun. And I just had you know, but this was before Michael was joined the Doobies. So Michael sure. wasn't really that famous yet. He was famous as a studio musician, because he'd appeared on all those Steely Dan records and, and stuff, but, and was just coming into his own. And uh, I kind of opened the door for, for me not working right exactly with Kenny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, the music world is the better for it. You maybe not so much. Johnny yeah, Townsend well, is know, our I, guest I, today. I'm, I'm thrilled that I was even a part of that. Uh, I think that's huge. The song, Smoke from a Distant Fire, uh, is still on the radio today, and it's part of this new um, movement that's really taken hold in the last couple of years called Yacht Rock, and it's one of those core songs in in that format, if you will, or that 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 style of music, along with Kenny Loggins and Michael McDonald and Christopher Cross and Jimmy Buffett. Do you think the song fits, and, and what are your thoughts on it having this sort of second resurgence in Yacht Rock? Well, Yacht Rock is really, a, a, it's been morphed from what used to be called beach music. Uh, in South Car places like South Carolina, Panama City, Florida, that was like back when the bop was, the, was, was king, you know, it was like there were groups, uh, there were bands that played the beach clubs. They were like the Swinging Medallions and there are all of these, these, these guys that the you really never heard of. Chairman of the board. Huh? The Double occasions. shot of my baby's love. You know, if, if you're on the radio, you probably heard that one. Sure. Uh, but uh, there were, uh, it was a style of music and it was uh, mostly rhythm and blues music that, that white guys were now playing. And, uh, and that was the style. It was considered beach music. I mean, they played a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of songs by people of color at, at the same time. That was, that was the legitimate stuff. But this, you know, white guys, you know, infiltrating that that form of music was kind of new at that point in time. 
back in the early 60s and stuff. So, but it, and it just became, people loved it. People, and it was because it was dance music. Most of it was dance music. And Yacht Rock has really kind of morphed from that, from what's what used to be called beach music in those days. Everything old is new again, and now smoke from a distant fire will come jumping out of your Alexa device uh, anytime you ask it to play Yacht Rock. And so uh, we're going to play it for you right now. This was a top 10 hit in 1977. Our guest, Johnny Townsend, sings the vocals on it. You're going to know it immediately as soon as you hear those opening licks to smoke from a distant fire. Here's Sanford Townsend on the Big Time Talker podcast.
Oh, that song never gets old. It still sounds fresh and vital today. And Johnny Townsend is our guest. He's the vocalist you heard sing Smoke from a Distant Fire. Um, so you have a huge song. You tour all over the world. You open for everyone. Uh, from Jimi Hendrix to Fleetwood Mac, and the list goes on and on and on. You do a couple more albums, but the hits don't continue to come. What does that do to an artist's psyche when when you've got the big one, but there is no second big one? Um, well, it, it is kind of frustrating, and and it has to do. I don't. I, I don't. I think it has less to do with the quality of the music than it does the times and the timing. Because uh, I think right, after, right around the time Sanford and I were, were record, started recording our second album uh, for Warner Brothers, the um, new wave and punk uh, music start really emerged at that point. I mean, uh, right around, right in the middle, I remember of us doing that, that second record Warner Brothers opened a new wing onto their building and 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 and, and signed Sex Pistols, B-52s, and half a dozen. There was at least six, five or six acts that they signed like within a week of each other, and all of a sudden that was that was the new thing. Right. And our style of music kind of overnight became uh, yesterday's news. And but that's that happens. I mean, that's that's the way it is. It's it's always changing. Anything in the creative realm, from art to music to you know any of the visual, especially visual or audio arts, is it's always evolving. It's always changing, and and sometimes it may not change in your favor, but it's going to change. So you, you you know if you look at groups like the Rolling Stones, how they've ever managed to weather every form of music that's come down over from disco to punk to uh, you know everything or, and all all thing points in between, how they've done it. They've done it through their songwriting and their approach to their recording to make like you know add new sounds or add new that, that that are current you know like so i mean it's it's disheartening to some degree but you know it's a thing you have to come to terms with it and otherwise you you don't you know move on to something else. you know fortunately you and, and ed were studio musicians for songwriters so you had you know that additional skill set uh, to sort of take the place of, of some of the touring and some of the performances when those started to slow down. You know, Johnny, I hear a lot about legacy artists that um, that really fall on hard times, both mentally and and financially, whenever the hits stop coming. But um, as I read up on you, it looks like you've done just fine for yourself. You may not be in the spotlight as much, but you continue to work very steadily all these years. Well, you know, it, it has to do with if you love what you're doing, you know, uh, you, you, you keep doing it. And it's uh, and, and for those who keep doing it, it's well, it's like life is like the lottery. You can't win if you don't play. Right. And if uh, if you're not if you're not playing, if you're not. I mean, I'm I'm at the age that I'm age at right now. I'm <laughs> six years old. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> And uh, 
I still sit at my piano every night for at least an hour and I write and I uh, polish up uh, things that I'm currently, uh, that I have been written, uh, have, have written recently. It's like, oh, I think I can do better with that verse or I want to do something more musically exciting here or, but that's always the challenge. And it's, and, and, but it's no longer, am I writing songs, am I writing songs commercial for commercial radio that people, you know, that doesn't concern me. It hasn't concerned me for years. I write songs for me now. And I'm writing the best, quite honestly, and you know, my, by self-admission, I'm writing the best songs I've ever written in my life. But, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but I don't see an outlet for it. But I, it doesn't stop me from writing it because it's a need. It's, it's number one, it saved me a lot of time on the psychiatrist's couch over the years because I'm able to put all my thoughts, my anxieties, my exasperations, my, my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations uh, into words in, in, a, in a song and be able to sing it back to myself every night. So I'm, I'm, I'm teaching myself again how to live through my music. Do you play out? Do you ever uh, go and, and just, you know, you see a, a nice little listening room uh, somewhere and you go, you know what, I'd love to go up and, and, and play a gig. Do you, when was the last time you gigged out? I would love to do that. In fact, I did for, for, for three, four years. I played around L.A. Uh, doing little coffeehouse gigs uh, with, you know, with friends of mine who were songwriters. A friend of mine, uh, Severin Brown, who is Jackson Brown's brother, uh, had uh was doing with a, with a, with a, uh, some guys down in hollywood uh there was a little club that uh i forget the name of the place but uh, it was on robertson boulevard and it was called uh, the event was like a weekly event called bunch of damn songwriters <laughs> and uh, we got to, you know we got to, and people would show up and we got to play and i got to play with a lot of amazing uh and hear and listen to and exchange songs with a lot of amazing songwriters uh, again, a friend of mine named Michael Smotherman was among that group, and Michael's written some great songs. And um, but it's uh, it was really a thrill to do because one of the things that I got I pulled back from the music business for a little while because of that frustration that we were talking about, and like, well, you know, uh, there's no place for me in it here anymore. But the place was inside me place for right. it was inside me that's yeah, where man. i had to find it you know and um you know and, and i did that i was able to go out and and during that period i was also going back to all my old records and looking finding on youtube all those marvin gay records that i that were like something like ain't that peculiar and just listen to wow you know i really love this song but i didn't realize what a perfect arrangement that was at the time that i was that I really like this song. Now I understand what really got me off about that, you know? And so I, I've, I've started doing a little musicology on my own and going back and listening to all those great Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin records and all the things that inspired me to get into music in the first place. And then not really necessarily incorporating that, but, uh, you know, during that period, I also had a chance to, uh, Sandra, Ed was always going out to dinner with people like J.D. Souther and 
right? And my friend Rick, the bass player, who uh, was uh, Neil Young's bass player for many years. Okay. And we would talk about things. And I remember one night, JD was talking about, we were over dinner and we were just sitting at uh, this little restaurant in Hollywood. And Jennifer says, well, we're, we're talking about all those great songs that the Eagles wrote, you know? And JD says, well, you know, we decided early on the Eagles, if we want to make music that's going to stick around for 20 years, we're going to spend more time on the lyrics. And by God, they were successful. I mean, they and they they really accomplished what they set out to do because sure. lyrics of almost every song that they do are spectacular. They had co-writers like JD and, and Jack Timpson and people like that. But for the most part, those guys just did something brilliant. You know, that string of hits that they had is really kind of unparalleled in the music business, uh, unless maybe you're the Beatles, you know. But uh, anyway, things like I get getting input from other artists. It was like uh, that period that I, you know, again, that, that period of frustration that I talked about, I spent most of it learning again and finding the stuff inside here and but getting input from other people and not necessarily soliciting it, but, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to go back and spend another four or five hours on this, on this one, on these lyrics I, of the song I just thought I finished. And, and, it, and he was right, because the stuff that I did was you know, better. You, you concentrate on it more. And anyway, just little stuff like that. It's, uh, I'd, you know, what I'd, I'd love to do as we wrap up the, the chance to talk here is play something from your later career that you talked about. You get the input from from all of that rich musical environment there in, in Southern California. Um, John Wayne Townsend, you sang one of my favorite songs of all time, and it's an honor to talk with you today. Oh, my friend, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Johnny Townsend, Sanford Townsend Band. And now we're going to play something to take us out on the show from uh, a band that you recorded with and performed with, uh, with the incredible Dan Toller, something from the Toller Townsend Band to get us out of here. Johnny Townsend, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by Speaker Match. And here he is with the Toller Townsend Band, my new friend, Johnny Townsend. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here, everybody. Make it a great day.
Yeah. 